I'm glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible and you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we'll be today. I was gone last week, partly in connection with my responsibilities as a trustee of the International Mission Board. That role uh, is a great privilege and gives me some insights into stuff that's happening all over the globe uh, through your International Mission Board. And I, I want to share some of that with you, a little update from that meeting. Uh, three highlights, basically, from that meeting before we get into the text. First, almost 90% of the International Mission Board budget that comes from your giving, your cooperative program giving and your Lottie Moon Christmas offering giving, almost 90% of that budget is spent on the field. Only a little over 10% is used for administration and promotion here in the United States. And, of course, 100% of your Lottie Moon giving. 100% of your Lottie Moon Christmas offering given, giving goes directly to the field. None of that is used for promotion. None of that is used for administration. By the way, kudos to First Baptist Church of Harrisburg for once again leading the way in the state of Illinois when it comes to Lottie Moon Christmas offering giving uh, over this last year. Over 90% goes to the field. Of all the money that comes to the IMB, 90% of it is used. No, other, other charities don't operate that way. You realize that, right? Um, so praise the Lord for that. Number two. The vast majority of the International Mission Board work takes place among the unreached and unengaged peoples of the world. In other words, we are not sending missionaries to places where there are thriving churches, where there are very many Christians at all in the world. We are sending our missionaries into the darkest places with the light of Christ. And you should be proud of that. In fact, you should insist on that. We don't need to send missionaries internationally where there are already Christians, where there are already thriving churches. We need to send missionaries to the darkest places, and that's what we do. Almost all of them, in fact, are working among the unengaged and unreached peoples of the world. That's number two. And number three, we appointed and commissioned 62 new full-time, fully funded career missionaries last Wednesday. 62 new workers launched out to the nations, fully funded uh, to give their lives for the cause of Christ to the ends uh, of the earth. And one of those families was our very own T family. And man, what a privilege it was to be able to participate in that service with them, to see their shadows and to hear their voices as they told their stories, and then to be able to pray with them along with a bunch of other people with them. So praise the Lord for that. Also, two of those other families are going to join our O family on the field in their city and be part of their team. So uh, of those families that stood up last week, we, we will have a pretty close connection with three of them, and we praise the Lord for that. So I will invite you to continue to pray for the work of the International Mission Board, continue to give generously to Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which you do a great job of already, continue to hold the ropes for those who are out there in the darkness, especially our families here at First Baptist who are serving overseas. And then lastly, continue to consider who's next. Who, who's the next one? to stand on that stage behind the screen and show their shadow? Uh, who's the next one to have brothers and sisters from the all, over the all over the Southern Baptist Convention support them and encourage them as they take the gospel to the nations? Maybe it's you. Maybe you're next. Well, last week, Pastor Joe preached in my absence, and he did a great job. I got to listen to it on Tuesday. I was challenged. I was encouraged. I was edified. And I was also pleased. And I hope you were too. It's a really good thing to know that when someone stands in this pulpit to preach to the gathering of the saints for worship, he's going to open the Bible and deliver God's word. He's not going to give you a pep talk that's better suited for the locker room. He's not going to give you a bunch of how-to advice like some worldly influencer would. He's going to preach God's word. He will tell you what it says. 
He will tell you what it means, and he will help you see how it could change your life forever. Every single time that's going to happen. I heard a story recently about an old preacher who was talking to some young preacher boys, and he said essentially this to them. He says, fellas, God has not called you to preach. He has not called you to preach. He has called you to preach his word. Not to just stand up and talk, not to rattle on, not to whip people into a frenzy, but to preach his word. That's what we've been called to do. No matter who is in this pulpit, that's what you're going to get. And listen, church, that's what you must expect. That's what you must demand. That's what you must require. You have a responsibility in all of this as well. Do not let someone stand up here and give you a bunch of fluff. Make sure they give you the word of God, whoever it is. There are a couple of things from Joe's sermon last week on chapter 4, verse 1 that stood out to me particularly. One was his reference to Pilgrim's Progress, that, that great work by John Bunyan. He talked about bypass meadow and the giant despair and how often those who follow Jesus can find themselves in a dark place. And there's a reason why we are told so often in the Bible not to be afraid. We're prone to it. The enemy knows that we're prone to it and exploits that. Second was Joe's comment that sometimes the very thing that causes discouragement is the means by which the discouragement is relieved. I've been chewing on that since I heard it. Sometimes the very thing that causes the discouragement is the means by which the discouragement is relieved, namely doing ministry. That's a tough word. I don't know if you've thought about that a second time since he said it, but I haven't stopped thinking about it. He also said this, doing ministry when it's hard can be super helpful to other people. Doing it when it's easy is one thing, but doing the work when it's hard can be super impactful to others. Well, this week I'm planning to cover chapter four, verses one to six, and I am completely confident that no one in the room, no one in the room needs it more than me. I want to be honest with you that this is a dark season for me. To use biblical language, my soul is downcast. I've grown weary. There's a real danger of losing heart. So it's no coincidence that we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which Gary Miller says is all about the secret of long-term, self-denying, Christ-honoring, Christ-honoring life ministry. I desperately want to hear God's word as much as I want to preach God's word over the next few weeks. And I want to be clear that I don't believe that any of this is just for me. It is for me, but it's not just for me. It's not just for pastors or other vocational ministers. Like Joe said, every believer in Jesus has a ministry. Every one of us has a ministry, and therefore every one of us is prone to losing heart. So look at God's word. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, committing ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. 
For God who said, light shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, give us ears to hear your voice today. Oh Lord, give me ears to hear your voice today. And grant that we would not be merely hearers, but doers of your word. Today and in the days ahead, you have brought us here today, together, to this passage on purpose. We don't want to miss it. I don't want to miss it. So help us to lean in and submit ourselves to your powerful, sufficient, authoritative word. As you once again, as you always do, give us exactly what we need, exactly when we need it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. So we're going to approach the text today, these six verses, by breaking them into parts. Verses 1 and 2 will remind us that our ministry comes from the Lord and must be done in humble deference to Him and complete dependence upon Him. Verses 3 and 4 will remind us that the enemy opposes God's work, and yet we know He cannot stop it. Verse 5 reminds us that none of this is about us. It's all about Him. And verse 6 reminds us of the amazing grace that we have received and the amazing glory we have seen in the face of Christ. So verses 1 and 2 remind us that our ministry comes from the Lord and must, not, must be done in humble deference to Him and total dependence upon Him. Look at it, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. I thought Joe did a great job last week of showing you the three big ideas in verse 1. We have this ministry, this new covenant ministry, this ministry of life and righteousness. That's the ministry we've been given. Not a, not a ministry of the, life, of the letter that kills, but a ministry of the Spirit where life comes. We have received mercy. Aren't you thankful for the Lord's mercy? Did you see that on display in your Sunday school lesson this morning? We could talk about that text in Genesis 19 as the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we'd be right to talk about it that way, but we also need to recognize that it is the story of the rescue of Lot, the mercy of God in the life of Lot to bring him out, to pursue him, and bring him out. Oh, we are thankful for the Lord's mercy. And thirdly, we notice that we do not lose heart. And that last phrase seems to be one of the main ideas of this chapter. Chapter 4 is bookended by do not lose heart, do not lose heart. But it's also a major theme of 2 Corinthians. The whole letter seems to be geared toward that. Have you ever noticed how many times God's word says, do not be afraid? You ever heard somebody talk about that? 365 times, right? 365 times in God's word, he tells us not to be afraid. Why? Because we're so prone to being afraid. We need to hear it every day. And so it makes sense that he would also tell us, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. He has to tell us that over and over and over because we are prone to losing heart. And when we are losing heart, it's usually because of opposition. It's usually because of fruitlessness, frustration, betrayal, abandonment, conflict. The list goes on and on as the reasons why we might be tempted to lose heart. And when those things are happening, we're often tempted to take some shortcuts, try to make things happen on our own, work in our own strength. And verse 2 reminds us that we must always minister with faithfulness and humility. We don't 
as we feel like we're losing heart, give ourselves over to things hidden because of shame, as the text says. ESV says it this way, disgraceful and underhanded ways. When we are losing heart, we don't resort to disgraceful, underhanded ways. Maybe that's a reference to sinful patterns or habits in our lives. Friends, when we are tired, when we are weary and weak, we are so prone to temptation. And the enemy knows that. and He will exploit that. and He will bring temptations. We must not give in. Maybe this is a reference to manipulation through dishonesty or deception. That's the case, the underhanded ways. We must not give in to that either. We must stand firm, even as we feel like we're losing heart. And just like we don't get to give ourselves to hidden things hidden because of shame, we don't get to be crafty and abuse God's word. The truth is that God's word isn't always easy to hear. Often it comes to confront us in our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our self-sufficiency. Maybe to say it another way, often the word of God comes as a kick in the pants rather than a pat on the back. And it's the preacher who must deliver this. It's the preacher who must deliver this kick in the pants. And it's not easy to deliver a confrontational word. And so there's a tendency to not say hard things. To water down God's word and make it all happy and easy. There's a temptation to never speak of sin. To never speak of suffering. To never call people to repentance or to sacrifice. To use language that I often hear. There's a temptation to avoid stepping on toes at all cost. But friends, one cannot do that and actually preach the whole counsel of God's word. If you're going to preach God's word, it's going to step on toes. If you're going to preach all of God's word, there will be days that are pats on the back. And there will be days that are kicks in the pants. There will be calls to sacrifice and repentance. There will be encouragements and rebukes. R. Kent Hughes said, Such tampering invariably edits God's word and exalts the preacher. This homiletical hocus-pocus has subtle roots, such as the desire to be clever and popular, or synthetically relevant, or intellectually respectable, or to make the gospel more acceptable. But most often, God's word gets watered down by the preacher's laziness. He simply will not do the hard work to engage and preach a text in its context. We don't get to be crafty. We don't get to manipulate God's word to make it easier. We must resist those temptations and instead, as the text says, deliver the word. ESV says, by open statement of the truth. NIV says, by setting forth the truth plainly. You see, in our preaching and in our living, we manifest the truth and commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul calls his young protege, Timothy, to this kind of faithful preaching and faithful living in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, when he says, Be diligent, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. Different translations render that accurately handling differently. Some say rightly dividing. One very modern translation say cutting it straight. Be diligent to present yourself to God as a workman approved. One who gets it straight and cuts it straight. Doesn't water it down, doesn't manipulate it, doesn't get crafty with the word of God, but delivers the word of God as it is. In all of this, we must remember 
that he has given us this ministry. We must remember that he has given us mercy. We must not lose heart. We must not give in. We must keep on preaching the word plainly. I wish there was a way to get something else out of that. Like in my heart, I wish there was a way to get to some other conclusion from that text. There's not. Remember, we've received this ministry. Remember, we have received his mercy. Remember, we must not lose heart. Remember, we must keep on preaching God's word. That's verse 1 and 2. Verse 3 and 4 remind us that the enemy opposes this work, God's work, and yet we know he cannot stop it. Look at verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Here we come back to all this talk about the veil. That was a few weeks ago in here from this pulpit, back in chapter 3. It was a few weeks ago in our study, but it's really just a few sentences ago in the letter, right? We're, we're, we're looking through a magnifying glass at all of this, but it was just a few sentences ago in the letter, so it's not far from the reader's mind. Paul says, if our gospel, the gospel that we are preaching, if it's veiled, it's not because we're veiling it, right? It's not because, it's because, not because we're hiding it. In fact, he just said, we're stating it openly. We're setting it forth plainly. If it's veiled, it's not because we're off in a corner secretly distributing it. No, we're standing up and proclaiming that Christ died for sinners. We're inviting people to believe in him and repent of their sins and find salvation only in him. We're saying that loud and clear. Some people cannot see it. Some people cannot hear it. Who are those people? Well, the text says they are those who are perishing. They are the unbelieving. Same group as those who get a whiff of Jesus and smell death. Remember that from 2 Corinthians? We are the aroma of Christ. To those who are perishing, it smells like death. On to death. What about you? When you smell Jesus in the life of believers, smell like life or death? What about you? Can you see the light of the gospel? Can you see the glory of Christ or not? Something we really need to consider. What about you? What about me? Can I see or not? Is it light or darkness? Life or death? Why can they not see? The text answers that question too because the God of this world has blinded them so that they cannot see the light of the glory of Christ. The gospel is being set before them. It's being proclaimed to them, but they cannot see. They cannot see the light of the glory of God, at least. So what do they see? Well, they may see a fable from 2,000 years ago. They may see the opiate for the masses. They may see an affront to their ability and dependence. To use Paul's language to these same people in the first letter, they see a stumbling block, foolishness. That's what they see, not the glory of God in the face of Christ. Colin Cruz said, The God of this age refers to Satan, who is permitted to exercise a limited rule in the present age. You can see John chapter 12. 
a rule that will be terminated altogether at the coming of the new age at Christ's return. Hallelujah. In each place where Satan, or as here, the God of this age, is mentioned in 2 Corinthians, he is seen to be seeking to hinder the work of God. That's a good observation. Every time Satan shows up in 2 Corinthians, he is trying to hinder the work of God. That's what Colin Cruz says. I would argue that every time he shows up in the Bible, he is seeking to hinder the work of God. I would argue that every time he shows up in your life, he is seeking to hinder the work of God. He is the enemy, not just of you, but of God. And I don't want to get ahead of myself here. The text in verse 6, we'll make this clear in a minute, but I think it needs to be said here that although the enemy is opposed to the work of God, And seeks every opportunity to stop the work that God is doing. God is more powerful than him. The enemy may make you blind. But the Lord can make you see. And he's done that. He's done it for me. I sing a song, I was blind and now I see. Amazing grace, right? He's done it for me. Done it for many of you. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Verse 4 Verse 3 and 4 remind us that there's an enemy who opposes God's work. Verse 5 reminds us that none of this is about us. It's all about him. Look at verse 5. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Step back a minute and recognize that's what ministry looks like. This verse 5 is an outline of what ministry looks like, whether we're talking about vocational ministry, like it's your job to do this, or whether we're talking about just the ministry of the, in the life of any Christian who is serving and loving and discipling and evangelizing the people around him or her, this is what it looks like. We preach Christ Jesus as Lord. We preach Christ Jesus as Lord. And I would encourage you to just dive into that phrase. On your own time, just pick that apart and meditate on it. We preach, we announce, we declare Christ Jesus as Lord. Those three words are, couldn't be more packed theologically. That's what our ministry is. We preach Christ Jesus as Lord and we serve as slaves to others for his sake. We preach, we serve as slaves to other people for Christ's sake. John Calvin said, The man who wishes to preach only Christ must forget himself. Here all pastors of the church are reminded of their rank and condition. For whatever title of honor they may may have to distinguish them, they are nothing more than the servants of believers. For the only way to serve Christ is by serving his church as well. Seems to me that one of the paths to losing heart is to think too much of oneself. That was terrible to write. One of the paths to losing heart is to think too much of oneself. Again, I wish there was another way to understand what's going on here. I don't want to say that. I don't want to say that today, but it seems to be true. We do not preach ourselves. Christ Jesus says, Lord, and ourselves as servants, your servants, for his sake. We are not lords and masters. We are servants and ministers. Listen to what Gary Miller says. 
The first step in a lifetime of gospel ministry is to get over ourselves. To realize that ultimately, whether people like us or not, doesn't really matter. Whether we are perceived as successful or not, doesn't matter. Whether we are recognized or not, doesn't matter. All that matters is preaching Christ as Lord. And we keep going because it's about him, not us. Verse 5 reminds us, it's not about us, it's about him. Verse 6 reminds us of the amazing grace we have received and the amazing glory we have seen in the face of Christ. Look at it, verse 6. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. There's a bit of debate at this point about which text is in the background of what Paul is saying here, this business of let light shine out of darkness. Some would immediately go to Genesis chapter 1, right? Talk of creation. Look at Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering, moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Only darkness. And then he said, let there be light, and there was light. He said it, and it was. Genesis 1 about creation may be behind what Paul is saying here, or Isaiah chapter 9. And talk about redemption may be behind it. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1, says, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Those who walk in darkness will see a light. Those who live in a dark land, light will shine on them. So what's behind what Paul is saying here in verse 6? Is it creation talk or is it redemption talk? And I think yes is the, is the answer. The point is that they're the same kind of miraculous power. In creation, God made out of nothing. And in redemption, he makes out of nothing. And only he can do that. And he loves to do it. He loves to do stuff like this. Because we couldn't possibly create ourselves, right? And we couldn't possibly redeem ourselves, right? Only he can create. And only he can redeem. And he loves to do it that way so that he's the only one who gets the glory. So that it's all about him. Paul knew what it was like to be blind. The author of 2 Corinthians knew what it was like to live in blindness. The God of this world blinded him. He also knew what it was like to see the light. To see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And I know what that's like as well. I know what it's like to walk in darkness. The God of this world blinding me. The light of the glory the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I know what it's like to be brought into the light, to see him and savor his glory and experience his grace. God did this for me, too. And I'm more and more convinced that meditating on that will help me not to lose heart. Meditating on where I was, what he did, how he has worked in me, how he's worked through me even, is helpful to not lose heart. 
He did it for Paul. He's done it for me. And he can do it for you too. Maybe he already has. Celebrate and rejoice. Meditate on his good work in your life. He hasn't. I'm telling you, he can. He loves to do it. He loves to do it. He loves to bring those who are in the darkness to the light. He loves to overcome the blinding power of the enemy and give you sight to see. He loves to raise the dead. He loves to forgive sinners. I want you to turn your Bible to Acts chapter 26 as we wrap up. Acts chapter 26 is a great scene where Paul is talking to King Agrippa. One of Three places in Acts where Paul tells his conversion story. This one's interesting and uses the language that he's using here in 2 Corinthians. So I want us to spend the rest of our time with this text. Acts chapter 26, start in verse 12. Paul says, while so engaged, let me stop there and say, The engagement that he was part of at that point was the persecution of the church. Like he had been granted letters from the leaders in Jerusalem to go to Damascus and arrest people who were following Jesus. That's what he was on his, while so engaged, while on my way to Damascus to persecute Christians, to arrest them and see to their death, as I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light, a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up. And stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Verse 18. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Do you catch catch what's going on there in, in that part of the text? That Saul was walking in darkness and saw light and his life was forever changed. And then he was commissioned immediately to go take that light into the dark places. And as he takes it, God will bring others to light. So, verse 19, he says, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to this heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those in Damascus first and also to Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should, that they should repent. And turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. He gave his life for that. Literally gave his life doing that. Tempted to lose heart? Surely. Even in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 1, he says, we, we were despairing even of life itself. Felt like we had the sins of death within us. Tempted to lose heart for sure. He stayed the course. 
proving obedient to this vision. So for application today, I want to call us to three things. Number one, to not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Keep on preaching plainly. Keep on trusting the Lord to open blind eyes. Do the thing. Do the thing. Whether that's with your children, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, Sunday school class, your pulpit, do the thing. A couple of the commentaries I've been reading in 2 Corinthians are written by British guys. And they say, get on with it. Get on with it. Stop your whining, or whatever form of the word, that word they use. Stop your whining and get on with it. That seems to be the advice. Don't lose heart. Keep on preaching. Keep trusting the Lord to open eyes. That's number one. Number two, remember, as you do that, remember, it's not about you. It's about him. So get over yourself. Get on with it. Get over yourself. Do the thing. Because it's not about you. It's about him. Who's going to open blind eyes? You? Who's going to raise dead men? You? Me? Only him. Remember, it's not about you. It's, it's only about him. And listen, if the, veil, if the veil is lifting, if you can see even the slightest bit of light, you can see even a slightest bit of the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ, even just a little bit of it. It's a miracle. It's a work of God. Run to Jesus. Like if, if, you, if you just get a little glimpse of him, run to that. Run to him. He's the only hope. He's the only source of salvation. Run to him. Trust in him. Repent of your sins, believe in him, and be saved. Let's stand together and pray. O oh Lord, grant that we would hear your word today. Grant that we would do your word today. Have your way. We are yours we are yours because of Christ. So we pray in his name. Amen. All right, if you, if you want to talk to one of us pastors, uh, we're all.